Beloved, it has been said that hard times create strong men. And strong men then can create good times. And good times, in turn, can then create weak men who then, in consequence, will create hard times. And so the cycle continues. Uh, That might resonate even uh, with you or us at times when we look at our lives of the ups and downs. We certainly know that when we look at the epics and eras of countries and nations and peoples, that may be true. Uh, It is somewhat reminiscent of the nation of Israel, certainly in the period of the judges, but even in her history. And that is precisely in a sense where we find ourselves in God's words to the nation of Israel, the post-exilic people, in the book of Haggai. Beloved, please open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Haggai is the first post-exilic prophet. It's the third last book of the Old Testament. It comes right after Zephaniah. So we turn the page from Zephaniah to Haggai, but we understand that in between the two, there is 110 years of history, of significant and rich history. There is a transfer of world power from Assyria to Babylon, then to Persia. There is Israel's 70-year captivity in Babylon. There is the prophetic ministry of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. And what happened was in 536 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus decreed that Israel could return to the land that God had promised her and rebuild the temple. And they came and they laid the foundation and began the work. But then the work of ministry to the Lord was interrupted by opposition. And then it was delayed by indifference in the part of the people. Faithful worship had been replaced by faithless, selfish busyness. And so the first word of Haggai in chapter 1 was a word of rebuke to a distracted people. But then at the end of chapter 1, we see that as the leaders were stirred, as Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest are stirred, so also the hearts of the people are turned and the people are stirred stirred as their leaders were and 23 days later after Haggai gave his first word the people began to build and work on the temple but then when we turn the page to chapter 2 we see that the work again is interrupted this time by three religious festivals the feast of trumpets the day of atonement and the week-long feast of booth so Whether it is sinful indifference, whether it's external opposition, or even if it's God-ordained feasts that we see, the work is being interrupted. And what happens is the people begin to stumble. The people begin to look at the situation not with eyes of faith, but with eyes of folly. And so the second word of Haggai, which is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is this time a word of encouragement to a discouraged people. And to be sure, beloved, this word of God was to the temple builders some 2,500 years ago. And it is for you and for me to understand, to drink in and to apply richly even today. Uh, Beloved, listen as I read by way of reminder the first five verses of chapter 2, the first five verses of the second word of the Lord through Haggai the prophet. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, 
the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, or be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, be strong, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. See, beloved, again, by way of reminder, the people were looking with eyes of folly, not eyes of faith. And we should understand that seeing can be deceiving. And even the reference to the former glory in verse 3, that was as man sees. They were focused on the external grandeur or lack thereof. The external grandeur, the older generation that remembered Solomon's temple in all its glory. Uh, So they were seeing the ruined skeleton of the temple foundation and they were discouraged by what they see. But that's not the way God sees. God is concerned with his pleasure and presence with the people. They weren't looking at the indwelling presence of the Lord, so they've taken their eyes off of God and are stumbling as a result. Hence, the threefold command, be strong, three times be strong, and work, work and fear not, are words of encouragement. God is saying, take your eyes off the ruined temple and look to the presence of the Lord. And in fact, Three times, once at the end of chapter 1 and twice right here, God says, I am with you or my spirit is abiding in your midst. Beloved, the point is, even for us, again, 2,500 years later, with God on your side, you are always in the majority. You are always on the winning side. Take your eyes off of the ruined temple, look to the presence of God and look to the promise of God and what Haggai does in this latter portion of this second word in verses six through nine is he punctures time and space four times with four promises of God four times I will I will I will I will God says what he will do in the future because God's presence and God's promise means God's power For the child of God. Again, beloved, hear the word of God, verses 6 through 9, our text here this morning. For, thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Beloved, this is the word of the living God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now again, 
Beloved, in these latter four verses, we have four I will promises from God. And they really are surrounding two great epics that we see here of what God is going to do in the future. We see the first great epic of a violent upheaval and the second great epic, which is a beautiful abundance. And the intent here is that this word of encouragement would strengthen the hand of of the people of God, for the work of God, by looking not at the circumstance, but rather looking to the word of God. And beloved, God's promise for your future fires your obedience for today. And may we live with a heavenly perspective and always assess matters, our circumstances, our trials, our tribulations, our difficulties in the light of eternity is what God would have all of us do. So the first great epic is a violent upheaval. And going into this, we should understand that the world as we now know is not the world as God made it. The world that we know by experience is the world as man spoiled it. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the whole of creation groans under the pain of childbirth, under the burden, under the pollution, under the piercing agony of sin. But we also know, Paul says through Romans, that a second Adam has come to the fight to rescue. But the point here in our text of Haggai 2 is the world needs a cleansing. The cosmos, the universe needs a cleansing of the effects and the pervading presence even of sin. So what we have here in the first two verses, verses 6 and 7, is a violent upheaval of all creation and the violent upheaval of every nation. First, the violent upheaval of all of creation in verse 6. And the point here that we should take is this upheaval, this cleansing is far-reaching total and all-consuming. It begins, verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts. That little three-letter word, that little preposition that's very easy to skip over, the for explains the why. This for tells us that what is coming is the foundation, the justification, the reason for the words of encouragement, the commands of encouragement that we saw back in verses 1 through 5. This is this for is the reason why you can take God's presence, God's promise, and even the commands to the bank in the vernacular, that you can take it to heart. And thus says the Lord of hosts, the military name of God, Yahweh Sibbaot. Fourteen times this name, this particular title of God, which describes him as a man of war, describes him as the God who is sovereign and all-powerful and who has a host over angels and hosts of even heavenly bodies that he sends forth is used in a concentrated fashion five times out of the 14 times this title is used in Haggai's 38 verses. Five of those times are concentrated right here in these four verses. In Exodus 15 verse 3, Moses there wrote, the Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his Name. So that is who is speaking to the people. That is who is speaking to you and me when we read these words. Uh, once more in a little while. Once more, this tells us that what God is saying he's going to do, that he's done this before and he's going to do it again. 
And we'll come back to that more later. But once more, in a little while. Now, understand this. The little phrase there, in a little while, that does not mean immediately. That means imminently. God is not saying, I'm going to do this in two minutes. I'm going to do this two days, two weeks, two months, even two centuries. Could be even two millennia. Rather, he's saying it could happen at any point in time. Like a thief in the night, it could happen unexpectedly. It means that what we read here when the original audience read it, and when you and I read it here, it means that it could happen at any time, and it could happen in our time. So, what precisely is this first promise of God saying, I will do this? What is he going to do? What is he promising? He says, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. Now, the word shake there, that's the verb form of a Hebrew word that is used to describe an earthquake and any kind of significant violent upheaval of the ground. It's used in the Old Testament to describe the shaking of the earth by the tumult of warfare, by the marching of soldiers, for example, in Isaiah 9, the trampling of war horses in Job 39, and the rumbling of war chariots, chariots in Jeremiah 47. Amos used the same word, the noun form, talking about an earthquake. And in fact, Amos, the prophet Amos, one of the other so-called minor prophets, again, minor in length, not minor in importance. In Amos 1.1, Amos being the sheepherder from Tekoa, dated his prophecy, the words of Amos, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. That kind of gives a general state, a, a, you know, a, a year-long reign. But then at the end of verse 1, he says, two years before the earthquake. So he uses this earthquake, this shaking of the earth, to date his prophecy. And beloved, understand this. Earthquakes can be frightening. They're terrifying. Earthquakes can strike at any time. Earthquakes come, especially 2,500 years ago, without warning. And even today, they come without warning. And another dimension and aspect of earthquakes is there's no escape from the terror of its furor. But what God says here is that he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. Now, as a student of the word, that should draw your mind immediately to Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. What God is communicating to us through Haggai is that this violent upheaval, this first promise of God that is coming, is far-reaching, total, and all-consuming. In a word, the God who created the cosmos is the God who is going to cleanse the cosmos. That is what God is telling you and me here. And we could have a series of sermons on this topic, but I'll bring out just a couple passages. In Matthew 24, when Christ on the Wednesday evening of the Passion Week, when he was up on the Mount of Olives in the evening, and he was giving what's called the Olivet Discourse, he's answering a question from his disciples about the end of the age and what things will look like and what will be the signs of those times. And in Matthew 24, verse 29, you read these words, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky, watch this, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And 
Beloved, the point here is that in Scripture, in the Old Testament and here in the New Testament, earthquakes are very often associated with God's judgment. That's the picture that we get from the Olivet Discourse. And in Revelation as well, there's great earthquakes. The sixth seal and the seventh bowl have earthquakes directly tied in with it as a dimension and an outflowing of the wrath of God. Or Joel, uh, another one of the minor prophets, another one of the 12, Joel 3.16 says, Yahweh, the Lord, roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. Again, this is God's judgment, but listen to the rest of Joel 3.16, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. So when we think of this shaking, when we think of this cleansing, we realize it's part of God's judgment on sin, but there is a way of escape. There is refuge and comfort and a stronghold for the child of God, the daughter of God, the son of God to run to. Also, understand this. When we map out and see the great epics of God's promise and what he's going to do in the future, realize that the rebuilding of the temple by this little vagabond flock of people that had returned to the land, this discouraged group of people, was a necessary part of this great coming cosmic cleansing. Beloved, in the same way, your work of service, your being strong in the Lord and working, your Fearing not, you're fearing nothing except God himself is a necessary part of his future coming and his future cleansing of the cosmos. In 2 Peter 3.10, Peter the apostle writes of this. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Again, it could happen at any time, it's imminent. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. But then in verse 11, Peter applies this and says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And what Peter is saying is this understanding of the future reality of God's coming judgment, even though we are hid in the folds of his garment, even though he is our stronghold, he is our tower and refuge, even in times of trouble, nonetheless, that should drive us and motivate us to live lives of purity and sanctification. And then when we go on to verse 12, we have, beloved, one of the most staggering pieces of scripture that brings out the concurrence of the sovereign, omnipotent creator God of the universe and the actions of his children. God is sovereign. He has foreordained whatsoever may come to pass. There's not a renegade molecule in the entire universe, and he uses the fervent prayers of a righteous man or woman to accomplish much. He uses your work of service. Second Peter 3, verse 12, well, at the end of verse 11, Holy conduct and godliness, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, 
If you were here when we went through Ephesians, you may remember the staggering statement that the Apostle Paul gives to the church in Ephesus, gives to you and me in Ephesians 3.10. He writes, The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Beloved, what God is saying to you and me there is that your faithful ministry in the body of Christ is a living sermon before an audience of heavenly hosts. You are, we are as a local church, a cosmic sermon preached to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, that is just a staggering concept. And if our minds are blown by that, consider this going back to what Peter is saying even in the context of what God says through Haggai. You're cleansing yourself, you're cleansing your life from the rubble of sin enables and hastens God's cleansing of the cosmos. Your obedience, your being strong and working, your working and fearing not hastens, accelerates the second coming of Christ. Beloved, again, this is all under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. And God uses you and me to affect his will. That is the beautiful glory and truth behind this. So, beloved, take away the rubble of sin from your life and clear the way for the coming of the Lord. In something of the same way that John the forerunner, John the baptizer, was uniquely used by God to prepare the way for the first coming of Christ, so also, according to Haggai, and more to the point Second Peter, your obedience clears the way for the second coming of the Lord. So, this is all part of this first violent upheaval of all creation. The second violent upheaval that we see in verse 7 is the violent upheaval, the overturning of every nation. This is God overturning the kingdoms of man to prepare the way for the kingdom of God. Verse 7, and I will shake all the nations. I will earthquake all the nations. Now, What is beautiful is from this point forward in these verses, it is a beautiful blend and portrait of near and long-term fulfillment, of metaphorical and literal fulfillment, of spiritual and material fulfillment, of an already not yet aspect. God will shake all the nations, and in fact, in the short term, right after this prophecy from Haggai, God did literally physically just that. 19 years after Haggai's prophecy, in 501 BC, the Persian king Darius led a great army into the invasion of Greece. But he was defeated, and 10 years later, or 11 years later, in 490 BC, as part of this long war, King Darius and his mighty army, which numbered upwards of 1.8 million people, it was the greatest army the world had ever seen, they were defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon. And I'll just leave that hanging in and of itself. Darius' successor, Xerxes, marshaled another army, and they were defeated in 480 B.C. Flash forward a century and a half later, and a man named Alexander, who became known as Alexander the Great, rose to power in 336 B.C. Alexander the Great had unparalleled success in military warfare. In fact, even though he was more often than not outnumbered, he never lost a battle. 
He was declared king of Macedonia, king of Persia, pharaoh of Egypt, and lord of Asia, all of which was accomplished before he died at the age of 32. And then after Alexander's death, the Greek empire broke up and was replaced by Roman rule. So, beloved, the point is there was an immediate near-term literal shaking of the nations. But there's an already not yet part as well. And this also could be a subject of a series of sermons. But in brief, God, through the prophet Daniel, said this in Daniel 2, verse 44. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. And there will be a literal fulfillment of that, and there will be a spiritual fulfillment of that. And again, that is part of this violent upheaval of every nation, of God overturning the kingdoms to prepare the way for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord. Continuing on in verse 7 here in Haggai 2, God will shake the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. The wealth, precious items, desirable items of great wealth of all the nations. The goyim, goyim is the word here. Now, we can ask a question. Uh, should we understand this wealth of which Haggai writes literally or metaphorically, physically or spiritually? Is this the wealth of the nations, or is this the nations as wealth? Is he describing the precious things of the people, or the Gentile people as the precious things? Good answer, yes. It's a both and, it's not an either or. Beloved, understand this, the 12, the minor prophets, are messianic at their core, prophesying of Messiah to Israel first and to the nations. And there is this pervasive motif through both the New Testament and the Old Testament of this mercy to the nations and the nations bringing a contribution to the sacred worship of the Lord, both taken forcibly in Old Testament time by the nation of Israel and voluntarily given. Now, one thing I'll say on this, depending on your translation, you might have a slightly different translation of verse 7. For example, the King James Version translates this clause as, the desire of all nations shall come. Uh, the NIV translates it, the desired of all nations will come. And both of these come, well, King James comes from the Latin Vulgate, translated by Jerome, clearly pointing towards Christ as the desire of all nations. In the great oratorio of Handel's Messiah, the bass soloist sings a recitative containing this particular promise from Haggai. Beautifully sung, the words in Handel's Messiah say, I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, that sings beautifully, beautiful rendition in Handel's Messiah, and certainly that truth behind that flows from Malachi 3.1, Zechariah 2.14. However, that's not Haggai's point here, the one fundamental problem with the King James, NIV, and even Handel Messiah's understanding is that the Hebrew verb is plural. 
And that's why not singular. That's why the New American Standard, as we read, translates it, they will come with the wealth of all nations, or the ESV, so that the treasures of all nations will come in. So what he's talking about here is something plural, something wonderful. Now, to help us kind of draw this together, you may hear me often, even in the prayer and the thanksgiving to the Lord over the offering, I will pray that God would bless the gift and the giver. Beloved, in the same way, that's what we're dealing with here. It is both the gifts of the goyim and the goyim themselves as the gift. It's both the precious things of the people and the people who are made precious by their sins being forgiven by the blood of Messiah. I turn back to Isaiah. In our scripture reading earlier, I read Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 9. And that is begins with directly addressing Jerusalem in particular, uh, glorified Zion. But go back to chapter 59 and in verse 1. So God here is specifically directly addressing the nation of Israel. And in Isaiah 59.1, you read the words, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But... Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Uh, Verse 6, nor will they cover themselves with their works. You can't save yourself. Verse 7, their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Devastation and destruction are in their ways. They do not know the way of peace. Verse 10, we grope along the wall like blind men. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before thee and our sins testify against us. A tremendous blistering statement on the sinful nature of Israel. Now, that's where this is focused. This might make us think of Romans chapters 1 through 3 where there God lays out the foundation that all men, all women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, there is none who seek for God, no, not one. Altogether, our works have become useless. That is is the staggering diagnosis of man without God, of every man without God. Now look at verse 16, Isaiah 59. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him and he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Look at verses 20 and 21 at the end of the chapter. And a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you. Almost the exact pause, almost the exact same words that God gave the nation back in, or forward in Haggai 2, verse 5. My words shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. That's God's promise to Israel, and the blessing flows to the Gentiles. 
Chapter 60, verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Verse 4, lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Verse 5 at the end, the wealth of the nations will come to you. Again, almost precisely what Haggai also prophesied a couple hundred years later. Verse 7 at the end, I will glorify my glorious house. Verse 9, surely the coastlands will wait for me and the ships of Tarshish will come first. You can't get much more Gentile than the ships of Tarshish. To bring your sons from afar, they'll silver and their gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified you. Beloved, that is the violent upheaval of God of all of creation and every nation for the blessing of Israel and for the blessing of the goyim, of any Jew or Gentile that would turn to God, that would turn to Christ. Now, there's a second great epic. This violent upheaval is followed by a beautiful abundance. Beloved, we must fight fire with fire. Lust's pleasures must be fought with God's pleasures. We must extinguish the flicker of lust's lie with the fire of God's promise. James Montgomery Boyce, in commenting on this, said, speaking of the people in the land at that time, compared to the past, the present was indeed bleak. But what they couldn't see was that the present was leading to a future that will make even the Temple of Solomon look dingy. And beloved, the point here with the rest of this beautiful second word is that God will abundantly provide glory and peace. First, there's a beautiful abundance of glory. And the point is, God will take these precious things from the people and these precious people and will fill his house, this house, this temple with glory. Verse 7 at the end, and I will, this is the third I will promise from God, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And again, this house drives home the point that despite the vicissitudes of the dramatic history of the temple, despite the fact that we can refer to Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple and Herod the Great's temple, there's one temple, this house, this temple. This is as God sees it. As I indicated earlier, back in verse 3, the discouraged people, when they talked about the former glory of Solomon's temple, that was glory as man sees it. But this glory here, in verse 7, is glory as God sees it. The former focused on the grandeur of the edifice. This glory focuses on the presence and pleasure of the Lord. There is a spiritual metaphorical foundation of this. And there is also a physical and material realization of it. Verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. This is literal and physical. And the main point of encouragement, again, remember, this is a word of encouragement to a discouraged people, is that the ruined skeleton of the current temple pales in comparison to Solomon's temple. But what does that matter? What is that compared to 
the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, the God who says all the gold, all the silver is mine. And as I mentioned, the contribution of the nations to the worship of the Lord is a pervasive motif, both New Testament and Old Testament. And what we see here is that the wealth, the precious things of the Goyim will be taken and volunteered for the worship of the Lord. From a taken standpoint, uh, the prophet Zechariah, by way of reminder, Zechariah was the second post-exilic prophet. He was a contemporary of Haggai. After Haggai finished his three-and-a-half-month ministry, Zechariah, who was very likely a younger man, very possible that Haggai was an older man, two months later, Zechariah came on the scene. And in Zechariah 14, verse 14, Zechariah prophesied, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So that's the wealth that is taken. But the wealth that is volunteered was there both in the Old Testament and the New Testament in both near fulfillment and far fulfillment. The historical volunteered contribution that surrounded even this time of Haggai, that was volunteered by Cyrus. That was endorsed by Darius. That will be presented by Artaxerxes, and it will be rebuilt by Herod the Great. Now, if you understand church and even secular history, and you know anything about Herod the Great's character, you know, it might not sit well on your tongue to think to say the words that Herod the Great had some aspect of contributing to the worship of God. But something that might be more spiritually palatable is consider the Magi of the East at the birth of Christ. The Magi from the East, according to Matthew, came into the house, saw the child with Mary his mother, fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and mirror, which we read earlier in Isaiah 60. Beloved, that is part of the fulfillment. But all of these, taken or volunteered from wicked men like Herod the Great, from good but unsaved men like Cyrus, or from men who appear to be drawn by God like the Magi from the East, all of these are pale shadows compared to what is still coming. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. When Christ comes again, when Christ came the first time, the kingdom of God was at hand because the king was present. There was a dimension, there was an already aspect, a partial fulfillment of the glory of God returning to Jerusalem when the king of glory, the prince of peace, the Lord of lords, came, when he came down from Beth Foggy on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and entered in Jerusalem. So also when he comes again in Zechariah, another passage as well, Zechariah 14, verse 4, in that day, this is the second coming of Christ, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. So there is a fulfillment that's already taking place and the more glorious one that is coming. And even, beloved, right now in the immediate Fulfillment with us. What is the temple of God? The temple of God now is us. It's the church. And that's why Paul says to the immature church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells 
in you. That's the near-term, in fact, immediate fulfillment that you and I enjoy. And there's a long-term spiritual fulfillment. Again, going back to Zechariah, going back to chapter 2, Zechariah 2.5, I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. That's also speaking of a time that is not yet here. And then, to really wrap our mind around this completely, turn for a moment to Revelation 21. Of the 1,189 chapters in the Bible, the first two chapters have a universe without sin, and the last two chapters describe a condition, a situation without sin. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22, God says through John there on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation 21, 22, John writes, I saw no temple in it, in heaven, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city this would be the city of Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb, and the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. Look at verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But that is the long-term spiritual fulfillment for you and I now. May our heart's prayer be, Lord, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And may your glory be our goal. So, beloved, again, there is a beautiful abundance of glory now and the best is yet to come. The fourth and final word of promise here in the second word of Haggai is a beautiful abundance of peace, of well-being, of shalom. It's interesting, I mentioned before that this military name of God, this man of war name of God, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sibba'ot, five times it's repeated in these four verses. What is the ultimate goal of this God of war, of this military name of God, it's peace. It's internal peace. It's external peace. It's eternal peace, well-being, and shalom. That's why at the end of verse 9, God says, and in this place, I will give peace. In this place. This place would be, I think, rightly understood, this is another both and. This place is both the temple in Jerusalem and Jerusalem herself, the city of Shalom, Jerusalem, the city of peace. It describes both Mount Zion and the holy city. And as indicated, it refers to both internal peace and external peace. Beloved, this is the blessings of the messianic age, the blessings of the millennium, and the blessings, the eternal blessings of heaven which await you and me. Isaiah 66, verse 12 God says through Isaiah, and by the way, pause there for a second. Beloved, understand this. When you look at the prophetic words in the Old Testament in Isaiah and certainly in the 12 minor prophets, very often they blur together the millennium and the eternal steady state. But the beautiful words from God through Isaiah to the nation of Israel and to you and me today, Isaiah 66, 12. Behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. 
Beloved, that is what is coming. And in the meantime, you and I enjoy internal peace. God is no longer our greatest enemy. God is our dearest friend. He's our Abba Father. He's our chief shepherd. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the carer of our soul. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the internal peace. And then I, I can't help but uh, if, you're, if you're at Haggai, go forward a few pages to Zechariah chapter 8. And in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 5, this is unequivocally describing the millennium. Zechariah 8, 5, I love this passage. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. There's going to be a reign of righteousness and a domination of truth in the millennium which paves the way and leads into eternity. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, Application, let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. That was necessary. That was the physical temple. We are the spiritual, metaphorical temple. And beloved, God has indeed reserved the best for last. He has reserved the best for the future, and this is only seen through the eyes of faith. Finally, last flipping of pages, turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Haggai, this beautiful book, is quoted once and only once in the New Testament, and it just so happens it's in the book of Hebrews, the book that I'm going to be preaching through next when we finish Haggai. It might be a couple months before we get to Hebrews chapter 12, but in Hebrews, Hebrews is the author is drawing out the superiority of Christ from, he's drawing out the superiority, superiority of the new over the old. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Christ is the better Moses. He's the better king. He's the better prophet. He's the better tabernacle. He's the better high priest. He is the better mediator. His blood is the better blood. His sacrifice is the better sacrifice. And in verses 26 through 29, we see this quotation from Haggai where he also basically says that Mount Zion, the future Mount Zion, which is the fulfillment of even the historical Mount Zion, is a better mountain than Mount Sinai, where God gave the old covenant to Moses. Hebrews 12, verse 26. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, and here's the quote from Haggai, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Beloved, Mount Zion is a better mountain than 
Mount Sinai. And the shaking that is to come is better than the shaking that went before. In Exodus 19, verse 18, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the whole mountain quaked violently. But the shaking of the created order, going all the way back, the upheaval of all of creation is to clear away. It's to clear away the rubble of the foundation, the rubble of the kingdoms of man to pave the way for the kingdom of God and of the things which cannot be shaken because they're based on the promise of God who says, I will do this thing. And then in verse 28, the author of Hebrews gives the application, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with fear and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Beloved, thus saith the Lord. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you. Even, Lord, as we look at these great promises you gave to the nation at that time that you give to us through your imperishable word. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that we can latch on to these, we can hold on to these and understand that they are made possible. They are realized in the perfect sacrifice, Lord Jesus, you provided at the cross. And even now, Lord God, as we approach the communion table to remember and to commemorate the great work that you've done and to look forward with anticipation when we will drink of the cup and eat of the vine with you, even in your presence in heaven and in the millennial kingdom kingdom lord god help our hearts to be right before you help us to approach this with a time of joy with joy in our hearts and a somber reflection on the great price you paid on our behalf and it's in your name that we pray and we approach the table amen